every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. I've been a fan of both shows since their original runs, and I've spent many years talking to lots of people about them, but I've somehow never done a full rewatch, so this will be my first time going back through all the way from the beginning. I am familiar with the stories, where everything's going, but my guests are likely going to be educating me at least as much as they will be our listeners, probably more so. Uh, and talking with me today is uh, Johnny Ho, friend of the show to basically every show that I've ever produced over the past several years, a uh, very active fan and organizer in the Brazilian Buffy fan community in the early 2000s, and a regular on the, the late lamented Whedonest.com. Johnny, thanks so much for joining me. How's it going, man? Thanks for having me. I feel very unprepared compared to your, some of your previous guests. So <laughs> well, let's go. Well, that's fine because I, I, that's how I feel every week. I feel unprepared to speak about this show with my esteemed guests every single week. So it's all good. Um, so I, I mentioned a little bit about it there in, in uh, my introduction of you, uh, the Brazilian Buffy fan community, but why don't you just sort of break down briefly your history with the show and and what inspired you so much to to become so active in the community? My introduction to Buffy was actually the movie, not when it was out in the cinemas, but a few years later when it was on TV. And after after it got shown on TV, I think it was a few months later that they started to promote the TV show. Back then, uh, we took it took about four to six months in between the U.S. premiere to, to, to the actual local premiere because they were showing the Buffy on the Fox cable network. Uh, it took longer because they were also dubbing the show. Mm-hmm. So we had a four to six month gap in between the seasons. So like season one, I think, premiered in early 98, okay. 97. 97, I think we got it around September that year. Oh, okay. All right. It was way later. I was going to ask you if you were getting it uh, subtitled or dubbed, but it sounds like you got it dubbed, huh? It was dubbed for the first four seasons until a lot of fans reactions asked them to get subtitles so around midway through season five we got subtitles for Buffy and Angel excellent right on so what um, 
active fan and organizer. What exactly does that mean? Like what, uh, what did you do? What sort of fan community were you organizing? So back then, the, um, there wasn't not a lot. There wasn't a lot of social media back then. Right. There was message boards and also email mailing lists. So the biggest fan gathering back then were through the email mailing lists. So I joined one around early 1999, and from that point on, which was called Diário da Caçadora, it was translated to Slayer's Diary. Okay. And through that, some of the people decided to meet up in real life. Uh, this was late 1999, and these meetings we started in, on the food courts from from shopping malls. They <laughs> grew to bigger ones where we gather to in someone's houses to watch episodes, discuss the episodes, and then we grew these meetings to large. Uh, year, yearly big meetings where we get people from all around the country to show up and just join the fun for, for a few hours. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Uh, during the show's run, I, uh, I was active with some online communities, but I don't remember, like I had a, f I had a few friends, um, like real world meat space friends <laughs> that watched the show. But uh, while the show was actually on the air, I don't remember ever being involved in any like large group gatherings or or viewing parties or anything like that. So I missed out on that uh, element of the fandom, at least on its initial airing. I've I've since become involved with the Weed and Studies Association, so I've been I've been to several large gatherings of fans, and I've had uh, lots of public viewings of episodes and stuff, but. Um, yeah, I um, I was kind of a solo fan while it was actually airing on television, so that's it's, cool. It, it was a very particular community because we were way smaller than the Star Trek or the X-Files fandom. Yeah, yeah. Part of the reason why I got so much involved with Buffy because we, we, we did have a smaller community. And for some reason, I kind of liked to be the underdog. Uh -huh. uh, that helped. Yeah. But apparently we did enough, so we ended up even helping the um, official Fox Home Entertainment local office to organize their DVD releases for the Buffy Season 2 and Season 3. Awesome. So it was really cool. Awesome. It was back in 2002 or 2003. That's very cool. Sadly, sadly the community doesn't didn't last much longer after that but it oh it didn't it didn't outlive the show itself not really oh uh, well it's so, really particular well we so i mean you were find, i'm sorry go ahead we can still find active communities on facebook or something like that but mm, big meetings that we used to do back then yeah not anymore yeah um well yeah outside outside of like conventions and stuff or or um uh, academic meet gatherings. I I don't know that there are any sort of large um, fan communities like that anymore. Um, but there was Whedon-esque for a while, and you were pretty active on there. Um, in fact, 
I, I don't know if that's when you and I officially met. We've never, we've never met face to face, but I do remember you. I was on Weedonesque for a while before I sort of became, I, I don't know if I became uncomfortable or if they became uncomfortable with me, but in any case, I stopped, I eventually stopped uh, sort of hanging out on Weedonesque. Um, but I do remember you from there and I, I'm sure that we must've quote unquote talked a little bit at least. Uh, yes, through Weedonesque. probably. And uh, yeah, in the so where you guys from? I, I think I know you, Arlo, and some of the other we don't have mainstays people from from there. So yeah, yeah. I mean that was that was a great way. That certainly um, since I never got to be involved with like the bronze posting board or any of that stuff kind of early on uh, the Weedonesque Weedonesque.com. And actually, I was a little more involved with Weedonesque.org um, than .com, but. Uh, Anyways, in 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 the last year, year and a half, uh, those have gone away for away. for various reasons. So now yeah. it's now it's just us podcasters <laughs> that are trying to keep the online community going. I guess that's not really true. I'm not doing anything. I I'm a very small fish in a very big pond. But at any rate, Johnny, I really appreciate you agreeing to to join me for this. I've, I, you know, Arlo and I have wanted to get you on uh, Gobbledygeek on more than one occasion, and I, I don't know why. There's, there's really no excuse why we've never there managed to pull that. There were a few technical issues the few times we attempted that. So yeah, yeah. We can do this in the future. I'm still probably your, one of your go-to DC guys. So. Oh, you're one of the DC guys. Okay, yes. Yeah. Have to remember that. Yes, absolutely. Um. Okay. Well, enough about that stupid other podcast that I do. We're here to talk about Buffy. So uh, let me uh, give the dreaded spoiler warning uh, to our listeners. Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once, that you press pause on this podcast and go do that right now. Uh, you're going to get a lot more out of this discussion if you've actually watched the shows that we're discussing. So while everybody else runs off to do that, uh, Johnny, if you're ready, let's go to work. Let's go. So tonight we are discussing three episodes. I, I, uh, I hadn't realized how lazy I had gotten in recent <laughs> podcasts. Uh, I guess I've been focusing on only two episodes per podcast for the last few weeks. So when I finally sat down to like rewatch these, I was like, Oh my God, three, three episodes. Yeah. You got a lot of two parters and then two parters. <laughs> yeah, man. I, at, you know, at the top of the show every week, I say we're here to discuss two to four episodes. Really. I'm just covering my bases. When I say that, I don't think I have any four episode discussion podcasts on the schedule and good Lord, I'm so spoiled by just doing the two that this three freaked me out. But anyways, <laughs> regardless, um, we're here for three. And uh, so today we're going to be discussing uh, episodes 215 phases two sixteen bewitched, bothered and bewildered and two seventeen passion. So exactly. Johnny, I'm going to start off with you. Um, these are, uh, well, uh, 
this sort of trilogy of episodes, I guess, is pretty significant. I mean, it leads up to uh, the episode Passion, which is truly a significant episode. But taken as a sort of trilogy, I think these episodes play well together. And uh, how did you feel about them? A lot of build up. It's really the first few episodes. You, they are more focused on they the characters being teenagers, mm-hmm. especially, and also regarding on the on you actually calling them a trilogy. And I didn't think about it before. They were actually the three big February sweep episodes for that season. Oh yeah, see, I hadn't uh, I hadn't even thought of that. I know that uh, the middle one, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, was kind of a – that wasn't originally on the schedule, at least not in that in that spot. It was – I think the original scheduling, it was supposed to go from phases to passion. Um, but Sarah Michelle Gellar was booked as the host for Saturday Night Live. Exactly. I guess for that week. And so they had to – they had to come up with sort of a filler episode for that week um, that would uh, – allow them to work around her schedule. So basically that's why we get um, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, where uh, I, th- I believe I read it was four days of the shooting schedule. Um, they didn't have Sarah, and so that's why yeah. she gets turned into a rat. <laughs> they had to come up with a reason for Buffy not to be a central part of the story. And I believe that means, I think that marks that episode as the first without like Buffy as a, as the driving force yeah with the significant lead or whatever of the of the episode but uh even so they found a way i mean they kind of whipped that one out together in sort of a rush um and i would say of these three it's probably the weakest it's it's good i don't dislike it but uh i don't think it feels out of place as the sort of the middle child between these other two episodes it does work. Uh, you can feel how how rushed it was. Probably the the way it was written. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was it's another episode by Martin Oxen, who's working a lot this season. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I've uh, it, I've uh, I don't the uh, vagaries of scheduling and recording and release and all that on uh, this podcast means that I don't know if you would have heard the episode yet where I've admitted my Marty Oxen <laughs> issues. But I, I will just say that uh, I, I have discussed on a previous episode the fact that I, I'm not the hugest fan of Marty Noxon, and it's a thing that's going to come up on the show in the future. But um, I, I could certainly nitpick some of the Marty Noxon-esque elements of Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, but we'll see if that comes about naturally, organically in the discussion. Okay. Um, Should we go back to to phases first? Yeah, let's let's uh, we're we're bouncing around. Let's talk about phases. So, uh, I'm famously probably not on this show, at least not yet. But uh, in the rest of my podcasting life, I'm pretty famously super picky about my werewolf fiction. So, I'm I'm curious to hear how you feel about phases and and what your thoughts on on werewolves in the Buffy fiction are. I'm not particularly familiar with World of Fiction, mm-hmm. but it was fun rewatching it to see how much of it was a practical makeup they had to, to use. Mm-hmm. 
and the elements that of the werewolf myth that they try to fit in with uh, within the Buffy mythos of of everything uh, uh, about the monsters being metaphors about something in life. So a lot about the werewolf was used as a as a standing for puberty and changes around around adolescence. Yes. And that's yeah which puts this a little more and and that's completely appropriate considering what the what buffy is as a show but like that puts the sort of werewolf lore of the series more in line with things like teen wolf and (laughs) i mean the like the original films i have not watched the the series of teen wolf that apparently is or or was i don't know if it's still going um so i don't know if that's been updated in any way but i'm talking about like the michael j fox films yeah uh, which made uh, lycanthropy or being a werewolf much more of a metaphor for uh, puberty, but and that's appropriate for that. I like that's not necessarily my go-to when I, when I think of the werewolf fiction that I I enjoy. I have a werewolf story in me that I'm just waiting to write someday, and th- mine will not focus on the uh, the metaphor of puberty or anything, but uh, but I like it. I, I mean, I think that's fine, and it's certainly appropriate for what the show is. I'm a little, I'm a little more picky. So you talked about the practi- practical effects. Yeah, it's appropriate to start off talking about the werewolves since we see one really early on. But uh, what what did you think of how the werewolf looked in this episode? Mm, let me think. Uh... A little bit too monkeyish, too, it's weird too because <laughs> yeah, it's a it's, it's a weird makeup because they do have a, a hard time trying to reproduce this this also later on. Yeah, when, no, when, they this I think this is the only time it looks this way. I think from now on it completely changes. Yeah, whenever they have to to show Oz as a werewolf in, in upcoming seasons or bring in more werewolves. It looks kind of iffy. It's not as polished as their definition of uh, vampires or even the the more more elaborate monsters they've been using in the series. It's just a little bit iffy. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, in in this episode. I feel like the werewolf was kind of the cliche. I think Joss. Uh, I don't remember where I saw this, but I think Joss has been quoted as describing it as a like a he calls it a big gay possum. I don't know why he had to throw gay in there, but he he uh, he sort of derogatorily refers to this this particular werewolf costume as a big as like a giant possum, which I think it looks kind of like the typical Hollywood, um, uh, you know, long snarling snout uh, walking upright. But yeah, in future episodes, I maybe because this particular kind of prosthetic was too expensive or I don't know. But like in the future episodes, when we see werewolves, I think it's looks a lot more like just a guy in some kind of bargain Sasquatch outfit or whatever, trying to run on all fours. And I know that they lose the the wolf like extended snout and all that. And looks I think the faces become more like generically demon. So, yeah, even though I'm not blown away by this particular like werewolf look in this episode I, I prefer it to maybe what the werewolves become on the show you mentioned that you're a big fan of werewolf lore. what did you think about 
the way they approach this. Uh, well, like I said, I think it's appropriate for the show. I think um, Oz is absolutely just one of my all-time favorite characters in the series. And so the fact that they made him the the such so incredibly laconic and laid back and like unflappable um, Oz, they turned him into the snarling ravenous beast. Uh, I think is great. I think, um, you know, I, I may take issues with some of the particulars. Like I'm just, I, I don't know. I I'm super, super nitpicky about what I want werewolf fiction to be this okay so i'm gonna throw this out here as an as an opportunity for everybody who hasn't heard me say this before to join in the mockery so please feel free to like email me or call me out on the in the facebook group or whatever and make fun of me but one of my favorite werewolf films of recent years uh was the the regrettably cheesy teen werewolf film blood and chocolate are you familiar with that movie? No, I haven't. I haven't watched this one. Okay. It's, I do not pretend that it's actually a good movie, but I have a soft spot for it in my heart. And one of the reasons I like it is because it features werewolves that don't, there's no half form. Like I recognize a massive element of particularly the Hollywood version of the werewolf mythology is that you can be human, you can be wolf, or you can be half and half like the wolf man kind of thing. I'm I'm not interested in the wolf man. I just like the idea of going just becoming a wolf, complete full wolf. And that film in particular did a good I think did a good job in as much as the rest of it was just crappy. Uh did a good job of sort of translating the kind of culture, the the social aspects of actual wolves it found a way to kind of translate those into a culture pattern for werewolves in their human lives. Um, anyways, it, it's, it's completely laughable. I can't believe I've devolved into talking about blood and chocolate, but um, that's just an example of how I'm super nitpicky about werewolf stuff. But in the context of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, uh, you know, makeup effects and, and uh, budget aside, I think that they do pretty good with their werewolf stuff. That's cool. Uh, something that I'd like to mention about this episode is something that it's a topic that's coming up a lot on the podcast is discussing about Xander. And <laughs> this, Xander... Is, this is secretly just a podcast about Xander. Yeah. About Xander. It's weird, right? <laughs> Especially considering what we're, we, we we do try to avoid to discuss the recent revelations about Joss Whedon, but it's hard not to yeah. it's hard to overlook the fact that mm, maybe Xander as Joss's avatar in Buffy is more significant and more flawed than ever because of all of these. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, it, it's a thing that I was I was, <laughs> I, was I was uncomfortable to... bringing up on the podcast, but it's it's just going to get harder and harder as the show goes on to avoid this discussion. So feel free. I mean, we, let's talk about Xander. There's a lot of immaturity shown through him through this episode in which he's 
infuriating Cordelia, mm-hmm. but he spent a lot of time uh, just ruminating about Willow and her growing romance with Oz. Mm-hmm. And there's also Xander dealing with Larry, which happens to be our first, very first act- gay character in Buffy. Right. Uh, the way he deals with it is really not is not mature. Let's let's put it this way. Yeah, the the from, let's from the whole confrontation. Yeah, I, I was gonna say let's start with the Larry thing. Um, yeah, because I we'll talk about him his attitude to Willow and Oz because that's just a thing that I love to talk about with Sander. But the Larry thing in particular uh, was a little bit troublesome just because. I mean, the, the Larry is gay revelation was kind of a mixed bag. On the one hand, I I thought, it, A, it was just a nice misdirect, you know, that the show allowed, at least for a moment, um, some semi-genuine characterization for this admittedly side character. Um, and uh, it does add a much-needed element of diversity into the series. And I I do think it's important that it was some someone outside of the Scooby Gang, but um, but yes, uh, Xander's reaction to it and his ongoing reaction to it, it was it was meant. I mean, this is 90, 1998. It was meant to be played as a joke. It was meant to be funny, but um, still, it is a little it's a little bothersome to watch it now. Yes, upon rewatching, it gets really weird. Yeah. Um, and I, I just don't know how much of my my discomfort with Xander is solely because I'm watching it through the, you know, from the perspective of someone 20 years later. But I, I am really having problems with the character of Xander. And um, yeah, his reaction. So he plays it off. He plays off his issues with Willow and Oz as being he's just like super protective of his friend. Like he, he wants to make sure that his best friend in the world, Willow is not, is dating someone worthy of her. Right. But that, exactly. that's, we, neither, I don't think either one of us believes that's actually what's going on. Correct. Correct. <laughs> he, there are several layers. We cannot forget. We're talking about characters who are still teenagers. Right. So Xander's not completely comfortable with, with, in regards to his romance with, Cordelia, which is something that we'll cover more on the following episodes, but also he, I don't think he's completely sure about his feelings towards Willow. Mm-hmm. Well, it's best friend for whole life. I mean, it is. You're right; they're teenagers, and so it is believable that he would. Like she's had a crush on him for as long as they've known each other. That has, uh, I mean, they've spoken about that. That's come, that has come to an explosive head in recent, like maybe just the previous episode, actually it's, it's, they've discussed it clearly it's out in the open now, but it's pretty easy for him to turn her down. Uh, as long as he's got another girlfriend and he knows that she's still pining for him. As soon as she moves on to a new guy, he becomes uncomfortable. Yes. It's a little bit of selfishness from his, from his side, of their friendship structure. Right. Yeah. 
Um, what do you think of Oz as a as a romantic pairing with Willow? I remember really liking Oz when he was first introduced in the series. Mm-hmm. He, he does play things differently from the rest of the characters. He's so laid back. He's a he's he's a member of the band, yet he's so mellow. <laughs> he's the bassist. He just has to say. Or wait, is he the bassist or the guitarist? I can't remember now. Dang it! But I'm not sure. He, yeah, not... even, even when they're on stage, even when he's in the band playing, he's just kind of hanging out on the side of the stage, just strumming his guitar. Like he never gets worked up about anything. Exactly. Um, so you said that was your initial thought. I mean, are, it, it sounds like maybe you've changed your feelings on him or what? How do you feel about Oz? Mm. I, I don't, I haven't really changed my mind about his character. He's just a really interesting person as the first official f- boyfriend for Willow, who we know later on start dating girls right yeah so it's it's an interesting play to who willow is at this moment who's very shy who's not so sure about herself it's someone who helps willow on her journey to become more confident about herself yeah yeah um oz is not only just a great character it's just a fun character because like you said, he's so different from the rest of the, the like Scooby gang. Um, but also he does, he's very important in developing, helping the character of Willow develop. Like this episode phases gives us our first, not really our first, we've seen her kind of raise her voice to Giles and stuff before, but like the fact that Willow um, ultimately like makes the first move. So Oz is, is like, super cool about how he's approaching his relationship with Willow. I love the fact that the early in the episode, um, Willow and Buffy are talking about how Oz is not making any moves or whatever. And Buffy says, she thinks it's good that he's not just being an animal. Obviously that's like a play on words. That's a joke about what the episode's going to be, but uh, it allows Willow to make the first romantic move. Like she she's the one that asks him out on a date. She's the one that, you know, uh, gives the first kiss or whatever. And that's really a dramatic step forward for the character of Willow. Yes. And it's, it's hard to imagine that happening in that way with any character other than Oz. So, um, as much as I love Willow's story, like as it progresses in later seasons, I will, I will forever be sad that, it eventually costs us the character of Oz because I adore him so much. Um, the We get the werewolf hunter. You can't have a werewolf story without a werewolf hunter. That's just the, the they go together. But did you, do you recognize the actor that plays the werewolf hunter in this, Kane? Yes, this is our first appearance by Jack Conley. Yeah. Who later on will return to Angel as Sanja. Sajan, I think is how they pronounce it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, for some reason I had, I had thought that Jack Conley was one of the hat tricks, one of Joss's hat tricks, who are the actors that appear in all three. Well, at the time there's more now, but there are a number of actors who were referred to as hat tricks that appeared on Buffy angel and later firefly. 
And I yeah. thought Jack Conley was one of them, but I could I found no evidence that he had ever been on Firefly. So I guess it's just this and and uh, his sort and of recurring role on Angel. Talking about Angel, we have the first episode when to so the build up of Angelus working on a men- menacing the Scooby Gang. Uh huh. This episode, so it's the first build up to slowly culminate on the tragedy that is passion. But we'll talk more about this later on. Um. Yeah. Let's see. I'm trying to remember what some of the examples. I'm trying to remember how menacing he was in this episode. He was more like stalkery. He was just in the background, right? Yeah, it's a lot in the background. Yeah. Um. Yeah. When we get to passion, he really, it really, it gets pretty damn serious. But, um, it's it's so refreshing at this point in the season. Like, uh, up till now, so much of the focus had been on the Buffy and Angel relationship, uh, particularly in just the past few episodes. Um, and I don't knock the series for that. Obviously, that is a super important. It is Buffy's show. Uh, but it was just refreshing to get this and, and actually the next episode, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered, that focus on sort of the romantic entanglements of uh, other characters besides Buffy and Angel. Yes. Um, it's interesting. Uh, let's just go back briefly to to Angel. What he does in this episode is he approaches one of Buffy's classmates, and he turns her into a vampire. Oh yeah. Which at first they mistake her death for being one of the victims from the werewolf attacks. Right. Yeah. God, how could I forget that? <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, actually, because I was, I was going to ask, so that was, uh, I think the character's name was Teresa, right? That's correct. Um, and, um, so when she turns, uh, when they're at the funeral home and she comes up out of her coffin, I noticed, I don't think I had ever noticed this before, but on this rewatch, I noticed that, um, Buffy was wearing a pretty, not the big one that Angel gave her, but a pretty good sized cross on a necklace around her neck. And, um, that gave zero pause to Teresa. Like I was watching that fight. I pay really close attention to like the, the fight sequences and the choreography. And in that fight, there was a lot of grappling and wrestling. And like, I don't, I don't think there were any headlocks, but like it was, it was a lot of that up close fighting. And I don't, I just, I wondered why that big old cross around Buffy's neck didn't seem to bother newly risen Teresa in the slightest. That was curious. But at any rate, just a little nitpick. Uh, Which, and Buffy has trouble fighting her to the point that who gets to dust her is Xander. Right, yeah. I th- is, this isn't the first time we've seen Xander dust mm. a vampire, oh. but for some reason... So this, this is a thing that I think plays through all three of these episodes, and I don't remember what it's like in the the immediately following episodes we'll find out when I rewatch and discuss those. But I noticed in these three episodes, the series seemed to be um, not backpedaling. That's the wrong word for it, but seems to be playing with the notion once again of maybe just maybe 
there could be something between Buffy and Xander. And I feel like that scene where um, Xander stakes Teresa and saves Buffy uh, is one of the moments that play across, I think, all three of these episodes where there's kind of a just a meaningful look between the two of them, a little bit, a little bit of closeness. I don't know. It's not the most overt in the next couple of episodes. We get a much better example of this, but um, I, I just feel like in all three of these episodes, the show wanted us to, to wonder again, like they'd pulled back from this. I feel like. Yes. By pairing him with Celia, but then maybe, Xander and Buffy, still a possibility. Yeah, which seems seems cruel <laughs> to throw that in there again, but whatever. Um, I want to comment on Oz's uh, reaction when he like wakes up in the woods and realizes that he is actually the werewolf. Did his so he sits up and he looks around, and realizes what's going on, and he just goes, "Huh," which is a perfect Oz thing. Uh, and I'd forgotten that that was a perfect Oz thing because I associate that kind of huh response <laughs> to a really weird situation. I I think of Mal from Firefly. Yeah, and it's the same thing when he calls his relatives to check oh, if yeah. his cousin's a werewolf. So is Jordy, I think it's his name. Is yeah. he the werewolf? Okay. Yeah. Totally not. And, and how long has that been going on? Oh, no reason. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> so I get the I get the impression his whole family is really kind of laid back. That's just that's just their deal. But it's something that I I wish we got to explore more for the series, but we never do. It's more about their families. Mm-hmm. We get a little we get family stuff from Buffy, a little bit from Xander, a little bit from Willow, but very little from the rest of the cast, and that's sad. Yeah, I wish there was more padding on this part of the universe building. Do we do we ever see any of Willow's family on camera? I don't think that we do. We see her mom and Gingerbread. Oh, good lord! Look at the look at you with the memory and the facts. Yeah, you should run this show. Um, yeah, all right. I'd completely forgotten for some reason. I thought that they were always in the background. I know eventually Tara, we obviously get family stuff involved with Tara, but that's later down the line. Yeah, we see more more of Tara family than we see from other characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, uh, speaking of Xander staking the vampire, we also get Willow is the one. It's, it's this episode, Xander is the one that stakes the vampire, and Willow is the one who ultimately, like, tranks the werewolf. Yes. So even... So in both of those cases, um, like Buffy and then when they're fighting the werewolf Giles as well, but not to diminish their roles, obviously, but it's just interesting that they are not the ones who ultimately defeat the monster. Um, mm. In this, we also find out another Xander thing, which uh, goes, it's remarked upon, but then it's quickly put away is the fact that Xander let slip that he does remember actually his experiences from the pack. Um, when he's talking about what it was like to have that sort of power to, to feel that sort of, uh, yeah, he get 
he lets it slip for a little bit. Yeah, and Buffy's like, well, I thought you forgot. I thought you didn't remember any of that. And he's like, wow, never mind, never mind. Uh, anyways. Um, so uh, what else about this episode? What, uh, what does this set up for the future? We have a lot about Giles and Jenny. Right. Which... Giles still dealing is he's still very uncomfortable about Jenny's be I, I don't know if betray was the right word. They use it a couple times, but I, I'm yeah, with I, you. I'm not entirely sure it counts. She yeah, she was there on a mission and that she, she's not supposed to tell him, so I don't think it's the betrayal. But... Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I feel you, man. I agree with that. But they're still dealing with this a little bit awkward Giles, which is weird because later on they they do change a lot about. You guys did discuss this even on I think during the Dark Age that a lot more there's a lot more information about Giles past. Mm -hmm. It's so it's kind of weird that so much about him is he's acting like this a little bit like a fool sometimes. <laughs> when it's clear that he he's not a fool. Yeah, yeah. I can't um, I can't remember if we talked about it in that, but uh, I, I think maybe we did. I think maybe I suggested or, or I I asked how much of that is a conscious act that he puts on. Yes. Versus how much of it is like really his nature, and I you know in in the real world people can be more than one thing, so. It is, it's completely believable that Giles, as a young man, was kind of, I don't, I don't know if foppish is the Edger. word I'm thinking of, but well, Edger. well, if, if, if as a child, he, he really was kind of this, this meek, reserved person. And then in college, he tried to embrace, you know, he found his, his darker half or whatever. And now, as an adult, he's trying to deny that darker half by re-embracing his more youthful innocence or whatever. Maybe. I don't know. That um, makes sense. I, I know when we, we... We can start moving into the other episodes, I guess, if there's nothing yes. else really about this. But I know when we get into Passion, we get a... The, the episode doesn't mention this, but I feel like Passion gives us a glimpse at Giles as Ripper there for just <laughs> just a little bit. But um, mm -hmm. but before we get to that, uh, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered, um, what'd you think about this? I remember back then when I first was watching this season. This was back in ninety mm -hmm. ninety eight. I wasn't a big fan of this episode. It was a weird episode. I tend to, for some reason, I even back then I wasn't a big fan of the more Xander centric episodes. Uh huh. I also had a, the same problem on the Zeppo, which is in season three. Mm -hmm. The Zeppo yeah. did grow on me later on. But okay, I was going to say, that's like a fan favorite now. It's weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I actually don't have a lot to say about this episode. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's see what we do have to say in here. I, I want to... I want to point out how interesting I find it that we get a scene of Angel and Spike um, discussing the poetry of lung removal. Mm. And uh, 
I just thought I thought it was interesting that Angel was like, I don't know. Spike said something about why you know rip her lungs out, and Angel's like, oh, it lacks poetry. Which first of all, I I just love the notion. In hindsight, this is another example of the the uh, finding retroactive significance or whatever. as they were writing this, they probably didn't know where this relationship between Angel and Spike was going to be several seasons from now. But rewatching it, I'm like, that's clearly Angel ribbing Spike about the whole poetry thing. That's got to be. Um, yes. So I think there are two things that, that, that we can mention about this episode. Uh, first is this episode does amp up a little bit about the witchcraft side of things on Buffy, which are not so prevalent on this earlier season, but become a lot more stronger once Willow becomes a witch, some things uh, and things of the sorts. And this introduced the almost annual return of Elizabeth and Alan as Amy Madison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this episode sets up her return. Um, yes, and then which becomes almost a every season thing. So she even if she pops up for two seconds, right? Oh no, it was okay. So I I forgot it was phases where they set up her return by having Oz notice the uh, the eyes of the cheerleading trophy seemed to follow him wherever yes. he moved. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was in that episode that was like just a fun little Easter egg for people who remembered the episode from season one, but it also was uh, kind of a foreshadowing that this episode was going to feature the return of Amy. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was, it was fun to get Amy back. I, I, again, my memory is spotty and I couldn't remember how much of like an active role. I knew that Amy popped up a few times uh, throughout the series, but I didn't remember uh, that she had like as much screen time as she did. Like she's, she's fully a character in this episode. I had forgotten that that was a deal. Um, so that was fun. It was fun to get her back. And um, I think this is the most screen time we get from her probably. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> what else? Oh, the, she does return on gingerbread, but uh-huh. a lot of gingerbread is mostly, it's more about, Willow's journey, so right. it's less about Amy herself. This is a lot about Amy actually taking over witchcraft from her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting. Not unbelievable. It's not... Um, I don't think it breaks the character, but it is just interesting to note that given her experience with her mother and her mother's turn to witchcraft and all that, it's just kind of interesting to see that she... Uh, hasn't learned anything from that that she relies on witchcraft or she she is learning to rely on witchcraft just the way that her mother did she is a weird character because it just seems that when she is first introducing the witch that that experience would have dissuaded her from witchcraft but Mm -hmm. then we get from this point and she's actually using magic to get away from assignments and things just amp up to the point that she's kind of crazy when we go to season eight, where she's again featured on the comics. <laughs> Damn those comics. Damn those comics. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I guess, uh, again, I don't... The series will eventually start equating witchcraft with uh, various, like, uh, other things, like drug abuse and that kind of stuff. I I could look at this almost in the, almost as if uh, Amy had been abused by her mother. I don't think that's I don't think that's in question. Clearly, her mother was abusive to her in the uh, the supernatural uh, Buffy version of child abuse uh, by taking over her body with witchcraft. Um, and so, on the surface. Uh, you know, a dummy like me would say, well, then why would Amy continue to use magic? That makes no sense. But if, obvious, of course it makes sense. It makes sense in the real world way that it doesn't make sense because this is an abuse victim who without proper, you know, counseling or whatever, just begins to exhibit the, the same abusive behavior themselves. Mm, exactly. So she, in this episode, she's not the villain because Xander is the one who blackmails her into doing this, but it does just show that the character of Amy is not really, is not okay. She's been damaged by her experiences. And this is uh, showing us that she's, she's got a hard road ahead of her, I guess, maybe. And we have Xander for the first time for multiple times of using magic or magical items and something completely backfiring on him. Right. Yes. Um, the show almost shot itself in the foot by insisting that Xander be just the normal guy that Xander not have. I mean, they, they gave him the weird Halloween. He remembers being a soldier thing <laughs> that he can, he can pull out of his back pocket every once in a while through the series Sometimes the writers just remember, oh yeah, he knows how to oh, use yeah. it. He knows how to use a gun. We can, we can use that. But for the most part, um, Xander just has to be the guy that can't really do anything else. Um, and th what that means is that uh, more often than is perhaps comfortable, Xander relies upon some questionable magic or whatever um, to, to try and fit in in this world of superpowered people that he's uh, trying to live in. He this is something that they do succeed on his portrayal is that all the attempts of Xander being the man when he's not really the man on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, okay, so we get... Uh, I, I want to talk about Willow. I want to talk about Alison Hannigan because uh, this episode gives us when she falls under the spell, when she falls under the, the crazy making uh, love spell, not only do we get a foreshadowing of an aspect, a deeply hidden aspect of the character of Willow Rosenberg that will come out uh, a little more next season. Yeah. Um, and again, notable that this element is introduced in a Marty Noxon episode, but whatever, well, I'm just saying, just saying, um, <laughs> but we also get another, and just an endless series of examples of, uh, Alison Hannigan being a tremendous young actress. The scene when, um, after Xander has sort of pulled 
Cordy out of the the group of women that were trying to like rip her apart or whatever, and they run out of the school, and there's another gang of women outside led by Willow, and Willow's got a bloody axe in her hand. Kill him! Um, yeah, I I was like that scene, Allison's performance in that scene. I I don't know how much of that was on the page. And um, I'm sure some of our listeners um, have access to shooting scripts and stuff like that. But I personally don't know how much of that was written and how much of that was just Alison Hannigan's uh, like fleshing out of the the character, because not only is she like clearly upset at Xander, not only has the love spell morphed into the uh, the heartbroken or the the love lorn <laughs> spell. And now everybody is angry, um, but she is genuinely hurt. Like she plays that, she plays Willow as like being genuinely emotionally devastated. Whereas basically all the other young actresses in the scenes are just, you know, yelling or screaming or scratching and punching or whatever. But Willow, she sheds a tear. Her lips are quivering as she's explaining how he broke her heart and she'd rather see him dead than in than with Cordelia or whatever. There's so many layers to, to the several scenes we have from her, especially after the spell. Yeah. The, the, and, and then, which is something to contrast with the willow that we have from this point, which which is still the very timid Willow who's starting to grow a bit because of her relationship with Oz, but still mostly timid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't uh, normally imagine Willow Rosenberg running around with an ax trying to kill people. <laughs> but um, before that, the, the lead up to that is the Marty Noxon Willow scene that I, I, I just have to, I just have to mention this. I apologize to my listeners who are Marty Noxon fans and don't want to hear me naysay her, but the, uh, we get the bedroom scene between Willow and Xander, um, which is a great scene actually. Um, and I, I sort of like the way it plays out. And again, I love Alison Hannigan's, uh, performance of this, but it just, it, it, I just take note that it was Marty that wrote this line with, um, Willow, like throwing herself at Xander and Xander's like, you know, I don't, he's trying to push her away. He's like, I don't want to use force. And then she smiles at him and says, mm, force is okay. <laughs> Which is so up to this point. So not a willow thing. I mean, I get it. I mean, in the real world, you know, it's always the quiet ones. The quiet ones always have the, <laughs> the deepest uh, wells of, <clears throat> of uh kink, I guess maybe to explore, but still that was it's a little bit of a foreshadow for next season. Yeah. 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 Which I looked, and by the way, the the episode we'll just say Doppelgangland is the episode uh, in season three where this is uh, explored again. This sort of hidden aspect of Willow, and that is not written by Marty Noxon. So I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not like trying to throw Marty under the bus or anything. I just wanted to point out that this was developed. This was first introduced in a Marty episode. This is also the episode where we get reference to um, the great Rufy spirit, which I thought was a funny line. I mean, it's a it's a funny line, but it's also a 
kind of a kind of a shakier headline when Buffy at the end is talking about how Willow had it worse than anybody else. She loved you before you invoked the great Rufy spirit. Um, it was uh, it was the episode of the pack where Buffy made the um, sort of throwaway line of Xander uh, had had uh, made the attempted first degree sexual assault or whatever, or whatever it was that she said. I can't remember the phrasing. And, uh, you know, it, in the context of the show back then, that was kind of a funny throwaway line. Um, it's a, it's a little more troubling as a line. It would be more difficult in a show nowadays to have someone say that and take it as a joke. Uh, same thing with the, her calling what Xander did, uh, invoking the great roofie spirit. It's a funny line especially in the context of the show in 1998. But nowadays it's a little harder to joke about someone just playfully invoking a spirit and comparing it to roofing a bunch of people. Exactly. But at any rate, also interesting to note in a town, in a school and a town full of women who have, are magically sexually obsessed with Xander. The only one of them that actually kisses him is Drusilla. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Well, I mean, Willow does nibble on his ear, but the only, the only like smooching action. They're so the the kids on the show, uh, at this point at least, are so obsessed with smooching. They all they want to do is smooch with their significant others. Um, but the only person he smooches with in this episode is Drusilla, which I thought was weird, and perhaps appropriate since he doesn't deserve smooches for what he's done here. But <laughs> at any rate, um, I think. We'll- the most fun effects of the of the spell are probably from the adults. So we get Joyce all yeah. seducing him, and we also get Jenny, who, who during the episode have several attempts to reconciling with, with with Giles. But once the the spell kicks in and she starts acting all hey gender, <laughs> yes, nice shirt. Have you been working yeah. out? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I love I I love Jenny so much. I love uh, Robbie Lamort, and it's it's so sad where this is going. But um, I, I, one last thing I was going to mention, um, I've seen some people complain about it. I don't think it's a problem. Again, in the con- trying to believe that these characters are are actual human beings with like flaws and imperfections and inconsistencies, just like all real people are. It doesn't really bother me. But I have seen some people complain that Xander. Or not, I'm sorry, not Xander. That Giles um, has, in recent episodes, been revealed to have made a lot of mistakes. Like he's done a lot of questionable things, uh, up to and including summoning a damn demon. Uh, and yet he is really, really upset with Xander for messing with a love spell. Um, I, I think that that makes sense. I feel like that's within character. You, you can say it's hypocritical of him to get so upset at Xander, but that's fine. Even if it is, I feel like that's a realistic hypocrisy for the character to have. But jokingly, I'm going to say maybe he's so upset because it does get in the way. Like, I think he can tell that Jenny is making attempts at reconciling with him, but they keep getting cut off by her suddenly lusting after Xander. Maybe that's why he's so upset. If Xander just hadn't messed with this love spell, he and Jenny could have gotten back together. Yes. And Xander's at this point, he's still a 16 year old kid. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and we do get a truly, in an early episode of the podcast, I apologize, I can't remember off the top of my head who it was. It might have been, uh, it might have been James South. Uh, someone was talking with me about the level of redemption that the character of Cordelia Chase is forced to undergo across really both series, Buffy and Angel. Um, and how it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's appropriate to the, the level of quote unquote evil that she was at the beginning. Like she was a mean girl, but the show really kind of makes her pay for that for the rest of her time in the series. Um, so I just love the fact that this episode we get, um, a great moment of character development for her when she finally stands up to the, the cordettes or whatever they're called to harmony and her other quote unquote friends and like, you know, tells them off and openly chooses to be with Xander. That's a great moment for the, for Cordelia. For me, a lot of Cordelia's journey during the first seasons of Buffy is what if Buffy never caught powers, but she somewhat still got involved in this world where we got supernatural creatures attacking them and some of of these elements what I see what what the the using Cordelia for to show a little bit because we never got to see the the Buffy version who was in LA mm-hmm. and short flashback we'll see later on on becoming but the Cordelia we see now it's a little bit what Buffy used to be when she was in Los Angeles yeah so that's interesting I like that I mean we it's been pointed out that Cordelia certainly in season one Cordelia is like uh, the Buffy who never learned responsibility or whatever she's she's who Buffy used to be but I I don't uh, but then she learns. By the yeah. end of the season, she learns, and she first she actually gets introduced to this world. And during the first half of the season, too, we see her get more active, even though she doesn't have powers either at this point. Right. Yeah, no, I like that. I I, I obviously had considered her as the pre-Slayer Buffy, but it never... I, I don't know. I never... I don't actively think of her... I don't continue to think of her as you know, the, the Buffy without powers. Um, but that's a good way of looking at it to imagine that this is that in another life, if Buffy had been exposed to this world, but not actually been the slayer, could she have, could she have taken on the Cordelia role? I like it. Um, all right. Well, uh, unless there was anything else in here, which I'm, I'm not sure there is. Oh, I want to point out, uh, Xander, in another blow to Xander's character, <laughs> he's got a poor Xander. I'm just not going to cut him any slack in his bedroom. He's got an X-Men 2099 poster on his wall. Oh man, Xander <laughs> of all the, of all the comic book posters you could have in your room, X-Men 2099. Really good Lord. All right. <laughs> but moving on. Only at least Spider-Man 2099. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Oh man, uh, another clearly the the most uh, evil thing that Xander has ever done in the series is have an X Men twenty ninety nine poster. <sighs> Anyways, moving on to passion, the big one. 
the the reason why everybody is listening to this episode of the podcast in the first place. Um, let's let's talk about the this feel good episode. Very feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what? It's what? Uh, that the episode starts with angels or angelas, if we prefer. Uh-huh. As this, he starts. We start the episode with his narration, and we also end the episode with his narration. Which is a thing I can't. I don't think the show's done this before, right? Is this the first like voiceover narration we've had in an episode? I think so. And it's um because a lot of these episodes is about approaching things from his perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there it. it voiceover narration can be hit or miss. I know some people like it. A lot of people don't like it. Um, I think that it can be used appropriately. Like I, I don't hate it outright. I feel like it works in some cases and not in others. I I think it worked in this episode because it is Angelus who's doing the narration. Um, I also think it's an interesting precursor of the fact that Angel, when he goes off to get his own show, that show is initially set up to specifically be a noir kind of story and voiceover narration is very like is very associated with noir stories so just interesting this episode is not noirish at all is not like film noir but it does have the voiceover narration which is a noir trope so it does make me think about books for some reason about books? Uh, yes, about how you book and things. I don't know how to how to explain this correctly. So, anyways, but is is the imagery that comes to my mind about uh, a starting narration and an ending narration? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a book ending. That is what you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. How it it opens and closes. And uh, I I meant to sort of transcribe. I'm sure this is easily available but i'm lazy i meant to transcribe all of the narration and just sort of read it as one piece because it plays out we hear it a few times throughout the episode obviously the open and then the close and i think there's at least one more in the middle there somewhere but i wanted to kind of piece it all together because i'm pretty sure that it's even though they use it to highlight um specific scenes Uh, Like it intros the episode and and sets the stage and the feeling for what you're seeing on the screen. And then at the end, um, I feel like it would read as just one piece, as just one sort of quote or whatever from Angelus, one um, statement on the overarching theme of the episode. And I kind of wanted, I wish that I had done this. I wanted to just read it. But uh, at any rate, um, this is... So the the feel good aspect of this episode is that it's our almost final final farewell to uh, my beloved. What's that? Yeah, Robbie Lamort. Uh, Jenny Jenny Calendar is basically gone now, um, uh, and more much more importantly, uh, this is our first sort of proper introduction to the real Angelus, even though still yeah. no one pronounces his name correctly but we've the sort of psychological warfare and the scare tactics uh that he uses are cruel enough but elevating it to the level of murdering 
one of our sort of main characters or peripheral main characters on camera, like right in front of us, and then displaying her body in Giles's bed, that that truly demonstrates that Angelus is not just kind of I mean the metaphor of this episode is he's the bad ex boyfriend or he's the he's the he's the ex that won't let go or whatever, but clearly they needed to um heighten that metaphor and uh this pushes him beyond just the the stocky ex boyfriend. At this point we're still referring him to an as Angel Angel? Yeah, basically uh, yeah. everybody calls him Angel. Um, because the distinction between Angel and Angelus is something that we build up later on. Mm-hmm. Well, Spike calls him. I can't now. See now, I can't remember if that was in this episode or when they were talking about the poetry of lung removal. <laughs> but um, I I do know in one of these episodes, Spike calls him Angelus, like he refers to him as Angelus, not Angel. Even though in the same scene, Drusilla calls him Angel. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Yeah, you're right. That is a thing. The distinction, um, they develop that a lot more going forward. But still, it, it's it's awkward for me to hear everybody continue to call him Angel. Even though I guess they, they don't really have any reason to believe that he... To treat him as two different people yet. I think maybe the most chilling thing that Angelus does... Now, this is an episode that's loaded front to back with him doing creepy, uh, like, horrifying things. I mean, he he is feeding off a girl in the alleyway as the as the Scooby gang walks right past him and just lets her body drop <laughs> as he moves to follow them. He like there's the great scene in her bedroom when she turns out her light and gets into bed and you just notice in the background that he is standing in her window watching her. And then the following day, we just find the envelope with mm-hmm. the drawn mm-hmm. picture. Um, so, I mean, all of that stuff is super horrible and creepy, but... Then the... we get the dead fishes from the aquarium from, from Willow, paying <laughs> off paying off Willow, inviting him in from a few episodes ago. Yeah, which was a thing that I commented on. I was like, knowing where this is going, it's really it's really uncomfortable to watch Willow invite him into her bedroom like that. But um so that that thing with him like having been in her bedroom and leaving her the envelope and the dead fish and everything, super creepy. Uh, especially since it ha- it's happening to Willow and Willow is just so sweet and adorable and fragile that it horrifies me to imagine Angel doing anything to her. However, it is the tiniest bit silly, not really, but just the tiniest bit silly to imagine Angelus, the scourge of Europe, <laughs> fishing out her little goldfish and, and little... And making a necklace And making a necklace out of them. <laughs> it's really funny. But, I mean, whatever. As she, says, as she says, as Willow says, I've, you know... Now I'm really glad that my parents didn't let me have a puppy. And amen, Willow. Yes. I'm so, so glad that the show did not go to that. <laughs> but um, no, the creepiest thing uh, that Angelus does in the entire episode is when, is after he's killed Jenny, after Giles has found the body, and he is outside... Uh, Buffy's house and he watches Buffy and Willow like break down and and cry when they get the news and his just 
evil smile as he's watching their hearts break. That, that, oh, man. That's, that's, to me, that's almost worse than the fact that he killed Jenny in the first place. And he does kill her with the most, most, I don't know the word, most impassioned way possible, considering the title for this episode is Passion. He just breaks her neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird because he when she when she runs and he's like, oh, good, I need to work up an appetite for this or whatever. You you just assume he's going to he's going to feed I, on her. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, it is really. Uh, I, I know that the I know that the producers debated that scene, the scene where he kills Jenny. There was discussion about whether he would do it in vamp face or if he would do it as just in his human face. And they decided, they ultimately decided, obviously, to have him do it in vamp face because they thought it was just a little bit too much to have, our, you know, our our ro- one-time romantic lead um, killing another one. I don't know. They just wanted that extra level of, of removal uh, to show that it is the demon Angelus that kills her. But it is an interesting choice that he broke her neck and didn't feed on her. On the one hand, it seems like that is the cleaner, less graphic way of like killing a character on camera, is to have him break her neck. On the other hand, there have been countless examples on the show up to this point of vampires, like even just earlier in this episode, of him, of vampires killing people by, you know, ripping their throats out. So it's not like the show is squeamish about that. There's a contrast to how... Angel being acting the entire episode to the, the entire escalation of events. Mm-hmm. And by the end of this episode, we finally lose the factory as a set piece. Yeah, in a great scene, actually. Um, Amazing scene. Where, so earlier in the episode, Giles uncomfortably counsels Buffy to basically keep her cool, to keep a level head to uh to not to be dispassionate basically about all of this as she says you're telling me to just ignore him and maybe he'll go away and Charles is like well yeah actually and uh you know he he does not he's not able to take his own advice on that so um another stellar example of acting from Anthony Stewart Head when he discovers her body and when he's like emotionally destroyed as the police are in his, in his apartment afterwards. Um, and then the like genuinely believable rage when he uh, charges into the factory. And one of, one of the greatest scenes when he throws the, the Molotov cocktail and then just, strides in and like dips his, dips his baseball bat in the burning oil and just starts like beating the snot out of Angelus. Yeah. Super cool. Something that I find really worth mentioning, especially in this episode, but also during the previous one is the amazing score by Christoph Beck. Yes. It's awesome. Yeah. No, <laughs> his, his, I, I Another revelation that I've come to on this rewatch is that he didn't score the whole thing. I, for some reason, I just, I've always thought Christoph Beck provided the score for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I knew that he up to season four. Yeah. I knew that he left eventually, but I, I just thought he had been around the whole time up to that point, but no, he's, uh, he's 
really like he, he does per- have a lot of iconic moments on season two, season three, and season four. Yeah, he he provides a lot of the the memorable, the most iconic stuff, like the the love theme, the Buffy and Angel love theme, and that kind of stuff. But um, so you know, as I'm watching episode to episode, and I I notice more often than I thought, I will notice that the score is provided by somebody else. And I, I apologize that I don't have any of those names up, but it's just noteworthy to me, at least that it isn't always Christoph Beck. So when he's around, it makes a noticeable difference. His score is, is genuinely great. From the funny side of the episode, we see a little bit of computing from the late nineties, saving <laughs> a lot of printing, <laughs> a long translation spell, saving yeah. things. Or on these cats. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. The the computer screen, like the 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 graphical user interface that we get for her translation. <laughs> it's so funny. Is really. I mean, I suppose it works. It it does what it's supposed to do. It lets the audience see that it's one thing on this side of the screen and it's being translated on the other. But still, it's really clunky. <laughs> Um, and and speaking of that scene, uh, because that leads into her um, her noticing that Angel is or Angelus, excuse me, is sitting in the room with her, um, patently ridiculous. I can't I can't get a read, and it, I don't see consistency among uh, fans and people who have written about this over whether the show, like what the show meant here, how much of this the show meant seriously and how much of it was just um i don't know misinterpreted but uh do you interpret that whole scene that conversation that she has with how did you get in here and he's like oh i was invited and then they talk about the whole latin inscription at the front of the school and how enter uh, enter freely all who seek knowledge or whatever it was um did you interpret that literally I don't interpret that literally. I think it was more cheeky commentary on his side. Okay. So you so you don't think the character because I've seen a I lot of think... I've seen a lot of people criticize Jenny for thinking that vampires couldn't enter the school when she's been in the school when vampires have entered the school before. But you don't you don't think she was literally saying how did you enter the school? You just you think that was just a menacing conversation they were having, right? Exactly. Okay. I don't think it was a literal conversation about rules of of empires in this universe. Right. I don't... Okay. Good. That's that's how I interpret it too, and I'm just surprised that it seems not not everybody interpreted it that way. Uh, and then, of course, the other one is Cordelia's car. I feel like the show does show us that that is meant to be silly because even Xander is rolling his eyes. Every time she talks about, we we have to, we have to protect my car or whatever. Like, obviously, vampires don't need to be invited to get into a car. But, um, again, I feel like that is just a running joke that the episode plays at Cordelia's, Cordelia's expense. But uh, I have I, I have seen some fans that took that literally. I concur. I don't think it's that. They do play it more as a joke rather than limitations about their the mythology of vampires from the Buffy universe. Right. Um, but speaking of the whole invitation thing, this episode gives us um, a way to disinvite them. Right, and it's 
technically, I guess this is Willow performing her first like actual real magic. Because uh, she's the one who's reading the incantation as they're walking down the stairs and Angel suddenly can't enter the house anymore. That's the thing. I wonder how much that is actual magic or just reading your face. Channeling people. A, a lot of we see about magic later on is about them channeling mm-hmm. energies. Mm-hmm. And what we see here is them re- actually just picking up a book and reading the incantation. Right. There didn't. There didn't appear. Well, I mean, they they mention earlier that the that involve. Well, Giles says it's a pretty simple thing, and he talks about you know read some uh, some couplets and uh, burning some herbs. All we see is her reading from the book. But I don't know. I suppose it's the semantics of what what is actually magic. Like what spell? What's magic? Yeah. What's a spell and what is. I don't know. I, that's why I kind of said technically, because again, in uh, in the witch in season one, I was like, when when she's mixing that potion in the in is that magic in the lab, I was like, is, does this count as her first like cauldron? This is her first like witch's cauldron. It's, obviously, it's not, but I just think it's funny to look at these things. And this is, to the best of my knowledge, this is the first time we see her reading out of a book for a. Um, active actions right an effect and it's and it's clearly it's clearly leading to the end of the season because we're you know this is the thing that willow does by the end of the season so a lot of building this up about her taking over jenny calendar's class after her death right right from her dropping dropping the disc containing the spell mm-hmm. yeah a lot of things yeah um the scene oh to go back to the factory really briefly um the scene when buffy and giles escape from the burning factory and they're uh they're behind the factory and um the that is possibly my second favorite characters break down in each other's arms and sob in an alleyway scene <laughs> that the two shows do um i can't there there may be others that I'm not remembering right now, but um, spoiler alert, uh, in Angel the Series, we get my hands-down favorite example of this kind of scene. One of my favorite scenes in the entire, in the entire works of Joss Whedon as a whole <laughs> uh, features a scene like this with characters breaking down in each other's arms in an alleyway. But um, I just noted the similarities between that scene that I'm talking about and this one here. Um, and, and this was a super emotional one. This is much briefer. doesn't last as long as the one in Angel that I'm thinking of, but it's only a few seconds. But it, it, it does have both Buffy and Giles like weeping in each other's arms in the aftermath of that fight. Talking about reactions, we also have a scene about the scene where Giles calls Buffy to tell them about Jenny's passing. Uh-huh, yeah. We have one of the first moments uh, of them showing a reaction without us actually hearing them, which is something that just reuses on the body when Buffy tells Dawn about Joyce dying. Right, yeah. Also, an interesting little bit of trivia about that. Apparently, um, for that scene, in order to... uh, 
Well, they said in order to get like a more realistic reaction from the two girls, they that was an actual phone that was actually connected, and Anthony Stewart Head was actually delivering his lines on the other end of the phone. So, (laughs) unlike most scenes like that where the actor is just holding a dead phone and pretending they're talking to somebody, in that particular instance, they actually were talking to Giles. This is really interesting. So, um, um, yeah. So, what uh, what else is there to say about this episode besides it is super damn dark and taking us? It's 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 leading us to some some good stuff, some good times. It takes us to the point that. Angel's not really playing the evil mm-hmm. version of Angel and Jealous. He's not playing. He's unforgivable and he should be killed. And maybe to the point that to the viewers at this point, maybe you shouldn't hope for him being redeemed, which was really interesting. Considering how much of the season was building up the romance between Buffy and Angel. Right. So let me ask you if you have any memory of your first viewing your initial viewing of this stuff do do you remember at this point did you still believe in sort of the redemption of the character or was this did this mark a moment where you were like oh that they, they're gonna have to kill him mm, i think at this point i think he was still redeemable uh i, I was still hoping for mm-hmm. the interesting part like i mentioned on the start of our episode as we got the episode later, mm-hmm. we didn't get the the huge break that the U.S. audience would get later on because after Passion we had Killed by Death, which was shown a week later, and then in the U.S. there was a huge break in between episodes before the final run of the season. Oh yeah, this break we didn't get here in Brazil. We just oh yeah over that was great at least. Yeah, so we had um, almost two months, like exactly. close to two months between the airing of Killed by Death. Killed and... by Death, too, I only have it for you, which is another episode that tried to address the impact yeah. of the events of passion. So you just got them back to back, huh? <laughs> we just got them back to back. That was great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I can't... Uh, I can't honestly remember how if I believed redemption was possible at this point um, as I've said I was not at, at this point I had not yet really kind of warmed up to the whole Buffy Angel thing I just there were other characters I was more invested in than Buffy or Angel at this point um, so I I honestly don't remember if I was losing any sleep over the notion that they were they might actually have to kill Angel at this point but that was that is that is still is a particular large group of the core audience that mainly invested on this romance side of the narrative. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. No, I mean in hindsight, looking back at it now, I'm like it's it's really brave uh, that the show did this. The like Joss has said that one of the reasons they made the choice to kill off uh, Jenny was to obviously prove that Angelus was actually evil, that he wasn't just messing around, but also to uh, shake up the audience and demonstrate that you, that 
nobody is safe. Like he, he wanted, and this has become, the reason I point this out is this has become, uh, Joss has become famous for this, possibly infamous for this. And I have mixed feelings on it's his trope. Yes. Know, yes. I, I have mixed feelings on the, the Whedon oeuvre, the, the trope that he has of killing off characters just to prove that he can. Now, I may get pushback on this. I'm not condemning Joss Whedon or his storytelling or any of his stories, but it is, it does become a cliche at a certain point. And I, I did like specifically with Firefly and the, the follow-up film Serenity. There, there are decisions that Joss makes from time to time that years down the line are just so obvious. He's going to make them because he always has. And so for for new viewers, of which I know there's at least one, just a heads up, this is not the last time that a beloved character is just going to be killed outright so that Joss Whedon can prove no character is safe. So just brace yourself. Just Or not the first time we have someone on the brink of a moment of happiness getting the rug pulled away from them. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Another another Whedon trope. But anyways, God bless him. God, God bless his dark and, and shriveled soul for the things that he does to us and his characters. Um, finally, I just want to point out, because this is the thing I'm going to do. This, Besides this show being all about Xander, uh, it's also all about Danny Strong and the character of Jonathan. I just want to point out that once again, we get an appearance by the actor Danny Strong as the character who has, at this point in the series, been named Jonathan... Uh, he has a name, but has not been named on screen. He's been named in the credits as Jonathan occasionally, at least once the name Jonathan was misspelled and half of the time he's credited as something else. In this particular one, he's credited as student. <laughs> so just for those playing along at home, keeping track, the, the Danny strong watch or the Jonathan watch continues. Jonathan, uh, Un, unnamed in the episode and in the credits was just called student again. That was probably his credit during the pilot's presentation. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know, but it's so student. frustrating. And his, and again, his only role on the show at this point uh, is to show up and get mocked, belittled or abused in some way. That's like the only purpose he serves, which is leading to something. I'm just telling you. <laughs> these things matter damn it <laughs> so anyways mm-hmm. uh, anything else is there I think the last thing I have of notes about this episode is really about Giles and Angel's relationship which yeah. is something that gets really interesting built up on the following seasons from they not really liking each other mm-hmm. and on the in defense, on defense, whatever. In defense of the comic books, <laughs> season nine is a fascinating thing about the relationship about Angel and, and Giles to the about Angel's guilt from all the all the things that we watch in the TV show to him killing Giles during the end of season eight. Mm-hmm. And season nine is actually my favorite season from the follow-up from these from the comic seasons that we've seen so far. Okay. Especially on the angel and on the angel side, which is paired with Faith, 
in which a lot of journey is about Angel's efforts of bringing him back, of, of bringing Giles back. Yeah, I did read that. I was reading that for quite a while. I, I gave up on the Buffy comics after season eight, and I just sort of kind of kept half an eye on what was going on there, but I, I wasn't reading them. And then, and I have been told that that was a mistake, that the comics got better. But um, I was reading the Angel and Faith series for quite a while and enjoying that. My favorite one have full fight season nine. Is mm-hmm. is what? Uh, Buffy season nine? Season nine is, um, is but, the whole, which includes Buffy season nine and the first Angel and Faith series. Uh-huh. Part of the season nine narrative is my favorite so far. But but now now hang on a second. Is is season nine? Is that the one that gave us Twilight? No, that's season eight. Oh, that was in season eight. Well, then I didn't Five even eight. then I didn't even finish all of season eight. I'd I'd forgotten. Okay, so yeah, some of this is coming back to me now. I think one of one of the problems, and I don't know if this has been fixed in subsequent uh, comic book seasons. But one of the issues, one of the problems with season eight in the comics for me is that a a, tel- a television to, season, I think it was like 40 go, issues. They go too big. They go too big. Yeah, they go way minute. too big. They go way too big. They were, they were, they were too free and too released of the, the restraints of a television budget or whatever. And that's the problem with season eight. Mm-hmm. Well, not, uh, big also, not the only one, but a big one. Yeah, but also it was like 40 issues or something like that, wasn't it? It like it took it, three years to it, tell the entire season. Yeah, three yeah. years to tell one season of the show in the comics, which is excessive even by I'm a huge comics fan, but anyways, anyways, that's neither here. Nor there. Not, I will tell not, you I will tell you yeah. when the Twilight stuff happened, uh, because over the years I have become a much bigger fan of Angel the series and also Angel the character, um, the all the Twilight stuff that happened, I threw my hands up at that and walked away (laughs) so but anyways all of that is just just one more reminder to my listeners that it has not been decided definitively if i will do an episode or two or whatever to uh explore the comics i don't i don't at this moment i don't imagine that happening but i've uh, johnny is the second or third person to ask if that's a thing that I'm going to do. So maybe, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. There are good things in defense of the comic book, the follow-ups. There are a lot of good things, okay. including Tales of, the, Tales of the Slayers, which was released during the series. Right. Yeah. yeah. And even the follow-up season. So yeah, don't just rush off. <laughs> season eight is a little bit like an offshoot. It's weird. They go to grand they go back a little bit to be more grounded from season nine on. Although I'm not the biggest fan of season 10. I was going to say, I feel like season 10 is the one that I've been told is where everything kind of, I thought someone had told me that season 10 is the best, but again, these things are subjective. Like what exactly? Yeah. So I don't know. Um, they're in, what are they publishing right now? Are they doing 12? Are they in season? They're about to start 12. They're about to start season 12. Okay. All right. They, the solicitations for the issue two for season twelve was just released like last week. Alrighty. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how much feedback I get. If you're listening, yeah, 11, it... eleven and twelve are really short, apparently. Okay. 
Well, that's was, good. That's good. Season nine, I think, was the longest one. Oh Even my gosh, the, longer than season eight? It was bigger, but sh- way faster because I think it was 24 issues from Buffy and 24 issues from Angel. So okay. two, they, everything was over in two years. Okay. All right. Well, uh, if you're listening and you have an opinion on this, <laughs> please weigh in and let me let me know. I'll uh, I'll give you the contact information here in just a minute. But um, unless there was anything else you had, uh, Johnny, uh, it's, I just need to thank you one more time uh, for joining me. And I know that you're on the schedule for future episodes. We'll make sure. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll talk as those episodes get closer. We'll see what's coming up. Hopefully, I'm not adding this out as bad. Because I really feel unqualified compared to some of the other guests. No, no, no. You're you are great. I I like the fact that I'm having not just like scholars and and teachers and that kind of stuff, but also just fans and people. Because because as great as all of my conversations with the scholars and the published authors and all that have been, and I I, I know and and love many of those people, and I've enjoyed all of the conversations. Every once in a while, it's fun because I am not a scholar. I am just a fan. And so every once in a while, it is fun to have a conversation that comes just from strictly the fan point of view. So th- this was a great talk, and uh, I-, I thought it went well. Thanks. Um, do you – I give all my guests an opportunity to out themselves to the audience if you feel like being stalked. Uh, how can the people at home follow you online? I'm mostly on Twitter or Instagram as Johnny T-Y-H, which is my actual name. The initials for my actual name. And that's it. I'm not, you can find me on Facebook, but I don't really use Facebook. <laughs> all right. Um, well, there you go. And uh, all of you at home, thank you for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com. Or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. I'm struggling to keep my head above the water of all of the other Buffy and Angel podcasts that are out there. So any kind words that you could spare would really help me stand out from that crowd. If you have questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, like whether or not I should be discussing the comics, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at cons with dead or reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, we've got a Facebook group called what else conversations with conversations with dead people. And that's where uh, I hope that the discussions that start on the podcast uh, can be expanded upon in a larger group on Facebook. So please uh, join us there uh, next week. I'm joined by Karen Viers, a humanities and science fiction librarian at the Georgia tech library and author of various works on fan studies and gender. We'll be discussing the whimsically titled killed by death, the comedic and uplifting. I only have eyes for you and the secret shape of water prequel episode. Go fish. So until then, ger arg, everybody ger arg. We got